0: talking benefits 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 talking talking talk a little bit about benefits Yeah, benefits talking benefits
1: you are listening to talking benefits every month we cover the top stories in retirement and health care the latest benefits hot topics and whatever else the industry throws at us i'm justin held
0: i'm ann patterson i'm julie stick and i'm kelly colesrud now let's talk benefits Well, quite a
2: bit has happened since our last episode, so let's get right into the news.
1: Just a reminder, we're recording this podcast on July 17th, 2018 at 10 a.m. Central Time. News. 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 News from nerds.
0: So I'll start with ACA on July 6th the Trump administration announced it would stop the risk adjustment payments to health insurers. The risk adjustment program is one of the Affordable Care Act, or ACA, provisions designed to at least partially offset unusually high health costs from patients covered by ACA. With risk adjustment, insurers that are determined to have enrolled lower-risk patients make payments to insurers with higher risk patients. According to the Department of Health and Human Services, the freeze was in response to a federal court ruling in New Mexico, and they hope to find a way to continue to make the risk adjustment program payments. Other ACA provisions, such as risk corridors and cost-sharing reduction payments, have also been cut or limited by recent actions by the Trump administration or the courts. There are concerns about how insurers will react to this action and if they will raise premiums or cease participation in the public health insurance exchanges. Our next story is a quick update on the Department of Labor's fiduciary or
2: conflict of interest rule. Inquiring minds want to know if the rule is really dead or only partially dead. When we last talked about the rule during our May episode, we were still waiting for the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to issue a mandate that would reiterate their decision from this past spring to vacate the rule. That mandate was issued on June 21st. Prevailing wisdom is that the DOL's rule is pretty much dead nationwide and that the old five-part fiduciary test from 1975 is back. So what does this mean for companies that change their work processes to comply with the new rule? According to experts, the DOL's Field Assistance Bulletin, the one we told you about in our May episode, will still help these companies, especially in the context of IRA rollovers. There has been some confusion after June 21st, however, because of a couple of lawsuits that were still pending related to the rule. One of the cases, filed in the Northern District of Texas, was closed on July 13th. However, one additional case is pending in Minnesota. Both parties to that Minnesota case have requested a continued stay in the proceedings and say they will provide a status report to the court on September 4th.
1: In our final piece of news, we have a new Supreme Court nomination. Recently, Judge Brett Kavanaugh was nominated by President Trump to replace Justice Kennedy. Since 2006, Judge Kavanaugh has served in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. From what we read, in employment matters, he tends to lean in the employer-friendly direction, but has ruled in favor of workers and the National Labor Relations Board recently. On a vote to challenge the mandate that employers include contraceptive care in their insurance plans, Kavanaugh ruled that this infringed on religious liberty. In another ACA case, he dissented on an opinion that the individual mandate is constitutional. His argument was that the individual mandate is a tax, and as a judge, he could not rule on a tax unless it was in effect. Since the mandate hadn't gone into effect yet, he felt they could not rule on its constitutionality. Of course, this is all speculation, Confirmation hearings are yet to be scheduled, so stay tuned.
0: Want a refresher on one of the topics we've discussed on the podcast? Enroll in one of the 30 e-learning courses offered by the International Foundation. Whether you want to learn more about FMLA or Medicare or Social Security, we've got the training for you. E-learning courses are self-paced, accessible 24-7, and completely mobile responsive so you can access them on any computer or device. To browse all of the available courses and to register, visit ifebp.org elearning.
3: In our last podcast, we talked about trendy benefit offerings, but today we're going to dive into a more perennial benefit for employees, and that is elder care. Uh, This is a benefit oftentimes upstaged by other family-friendly perks like parental leave or fertility benefits, so it's been a little slower to materialize, but increasingly more critical for employers to address. So that's why the host decided this episode that elder care is what the benefit pros want to know.
1: What benefit pros?
0: Benefit
3: pros. Benefit pros. Want to know. Want to know. What benefit pros want to know. And why do they want to know about elder care benefits? Well, according to AARP, by 2040, one in five people will be over the age of 65. Now, right now, one in seven are over the age of 65, and we're talking Americans here. And also in 2040, that 85 and older group will have grown from 6.4 million to 14.6 million. Caregiving is really impacting multiple generations in the workplace. 25% of all family caregivers in the U.S. are younger millennials and half are under the age of 50. So individuals needing care from employees can include parents, grandparents, siblings, and other relatives like aunts, uncles, and in-laws. When we're chatting about elder care, we're not just talking about parents. We're talking about a lot of different people in the lives of employees who they might be caring for.
2: Well, and elder care isn't necessarily really a new topic, of course. This has been going on forever, for generations, where people have had to take care of someone in their lives. But um, as far as elder care benefits, I mean, Kelly and I have been answering questions from our members since, like, the 1990s, and we would get questions back then um, on that topic, too. So it's it's a perennial topic of interest. Mm -hmm. Fannie Mae,
3: the home mortgage lender company, they first introduced elder care support in 1999 when they found out that 70% of their employees were either currently caregivers or would be in the near future. So they were kind of one of the early adapters to really push this benefit and communicate that out to their employees.
0: Well, and we, of course, want to talk about why employers specifically should care about whether their employees are dealing with an elderly loved one that needs some care. Obviously, these decisions and researching the options and getting the care set up can be very stressful and emotional. And this stress and guilt and difficulty of being a caregiver can lead to anxiety, depression, even physical symptoms like weight gain and disrupted sleep. And in the workplace, this can lead to distracted employees, lower productivity, and increased absenteeism and presenteeism. And just a reminder, when we mention presenteeism, we're talking about a phenomenon where employees are at work, but they're ill or injured or distracted and cannot be very productive. In other words, they're there in body, but not fully engaged. And that's definitely a detriment to the workplace. That same stress and anxiety can also lead then to higher health care costs and even employee turnover. Sometimes if an employee gets frustrated in the situation, they just quit their job And because they put their family above their work and you can lose a valuable employee. Well, sometimes they don't have any other choice. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the, the bottom line is caregivers need support, and it behooves employers to consider what they can reasonably do to support those caregivers.
1: And Kelly, some of those comments you made about a sort of workforce impact were echoed in a uh, forthcoming financial education survey that our research department is conducting. We asked the challenges that are impacting a significant portion of a respondents workforce and uh, supporting elderly parents was cited by almost forty percent of respondents which was right behind actually paying medical expenses so it, This is a significant burden on workers. Mm
3: -hmm. And as we discussed this topic more, we found out that plenty of our colleagues here at the International Foundation are dealing with the issue of caring for a loved one. And so I actually interviewed a few of them about their experiences.
1: I wish I would have known. I wish I would have thought about. I
3: wish I would have considered. I wish I would have understood. So Bobby. What do you wish you would have known about caregiving before you had to do it?
4: I wish I would have understood how Medicare works. Okay. I had a base understanding from the TV commercials. Thank goodness I at least had that that there was a Medicare Part D and that everybody should have that. I didn't know if they need had to have it, if they should have it. So anyway, what did Medicare do? How are there premiums? Was it? Are there levels? I knew nothing, and my dad, by the time he had turned over. The right for me to be involved in this was towards the end of his life. And so I wasn't really sure if the information he gave me was um, accurate or not. And luckily, he was fairly healthy until the end. So he didn't have a lot of prescriptions. So I still went to the same pharmacy. They knew the drill. They knew my dad. Sometimes he'd wave to them from the car. I mean, so I'm... So it was all set up, and I just had to follow the pattern, but if anything changed, I really didn't know. I didn't know what was covered. So literally, because I was in the throes of caregiving, this actually was very important, but I didn't have time to think about it. I didn't have time to do the research. I just continued on what was there. And then by the time it's like, um, boy, you know, somebody said, well, you know, this. I think that's covered under Medicare. Well, I'd already paid for it. Sure. Why Why, why would you I even think that that You were too busy to go thing? back
3: and research and... Exactly. Okay.
4: So I just needed... I wish I would have had someone give me the Cran version.
3: Right. Of what... You needed a Medicare things. 101... Exactly. ...at that time. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Do you wish somebody would have just handed you a flyer? Somebody would have pointed you to the right direction with yep. information? I think
4: that that would have been great. Okay. I never would have thought to walk down to HR and say... Can, can somebody help me here? First right. off, it's my dad. It's It wasn't like dad wasn't their employee. Right. I would have felt right. bad asking them for help for someone that didn't work here. So yeah, I would have loved to have been at least had the base knowledge, not to be hoping that this would get taken care of or paying out of
3: pocket when maybe I didn't need to. Sure, you could have saved there if, if you would have had those resources. Did you end up having a go-to source? Where did you find most of your information?
4: I would call on the back of his card. Okay. I would call okay. and go, can you, can you help me Walk here? me through this. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And okay. luckily my dad because I wasn't my dad and I wasn't on any, you know, also talk to my daughter list. Sure. That he was able to talk to the insurance company or capable of understanding the questions and say, yes, I'd like to include Bobby in on this or that, whatever it was, so that I could just call them and get information from them. And they were good, but I sometimes I just, I guess, and I'm also afraid that I didn't know the right questions to ask. Sure.
3: Yeah, Yeah. and you would know that now so you can be an advocate for yourself, which is great. So, there we
4: go.
2: So what could an employer do to help Bobby in this situation? So employers can either provide education or they can refer workers to reliable resources about Medicare. And they can also remind employees to look into all federal and state benefits available. Things like VA benefits or Medicaid or Supplemental Security Income or known as SSI. And for example, the Foundation makes available an e-learning course and a book, both of which explain the basics of Medicare. And there are a variety of programs available to help seniors with medications, health care issues, income, housing, and nutrition, to name a few. And assistance can come from government agencies and also from community or religious organizations. So there's uh, many places out there that employers can refer their people to. It will help the employees if the employers can kind of aggregate that information and help point them in the right direction.
3: Marilyn, thanks for chatting with us today. This is kind of unique because your mom is in a completely different state, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. So then how did you and your siblings handle that long-distance caregiving relationship? Two of my sisters
5: do live in Iowa, but okay. they are a couple of hours away. Okay. And for me, it's more like four and a half, five hours. So the sister who's the closest takes on the responsibility of being the emergency contact. But for our day-to-day responsibilities, we decided that one of us would be in charge of the healthcare questions or um, notifications, whatever needs to be done, and another one would be in charge of financial stuff. Okay. So that was one way we divided up the responsibilities so nobody would feel like it was all their responsibility.
3: That's a great idea. What would you say is the biggest challenge you and your siblings have faced given the distance?
5: Probably just not being able to be there at a moment's notice if she needs us for health reasons or if she just needs a ride to a doctor's appointment. So that was probably the biggest challenge. Sure.
3: And in your case, with your mom being a few hours away, a flexible workplace is pretty helpful for you and your siblings?
5: Yes. Um, There were a couple of times when she was in the hospital, Mm -hmm. and we didn't want any of the siblings to have to feel like they were on call or had to be by her bedside all the time. So we tried to take turns and break it up, and having the flexibility of being able to take the time off to do that was pretty important to me.
3: It was helpful hearing Marilyn's perspective because she was the only colleague we spoke with who's providing elder care remotely for her mother out of state. Employees like Marilyn require added flexibility to balance the additional coordination necessary when the individual they are caring for is remote or out of state.
0: And I think actually that's a pretty common occurrence right. that the loved mm-hmm. one, or in this case, parents, are living in a different state and mm-hmm. it could be across the entire country. You know, for example, my parents live in Tucson and I'm in Wisconsin, and if they ever need care, Luckily, my brother lives close by, but if it were just me, it would be much more complicated. Again, I want to remind employers what they can do to help out in situations like this. This is where flexibility is a key word. Offering flex time, flexible work options, maybe the option to work at home or remotely. If you have to travel to where the elderly person is, Luckily, today, technology lets us do a lot of work remotely. Obviously, as an employer, you are required by law to offer unpaid leave under FMLA. But I know more and more employers are offering paid leave options. And you may want to consider expanding your paid leave to include any sort of family care or elder care. And just, you know, as I said, being flexible. Another option is for employers to make employees facing these types of situations aware that there are a number of vendors out there that are offering a variety of services for seniors. For example, there are vendors that can help set up doctor appointments and coordinate transportation to those appointments. And so if you are dealing with something remotely, this would be a great service to tap into. So an employer can, again, just be a resource and referral to those kinds of vendors. Some employers have taken another step beyond that and offer access to call centers that are staffed with elder care specialists, and they might even include a free trial of a few hours or um, a discount in getting access to these kinds of
3: specialists. That's great that resources like that exist that are easy for employers to communicate to their employees to use, make things a little easier. Deloitte is a company that's really doing a lot to support their employees who are caregivers. And in fact, last fall, they introduced a new program that allows all employees to take up to 16 weeks of paid time off per year to care not only for a new child, which is, which is pretty common, uh, but also for a family member with an eligible health condition.
1: And again, referencing that forthcoming 2018 Employee Benefit Survey, um, we asked a number of questions about the prevalence of benefits that are kind of in this arena. Starting with leave, 17% offer paid family or caregiving leave, as Kelly had mentioned. And on the unpaid side, 34% are offering unpaid family or caregiving leave that goes beyond those FMLA requirements. So just giving them a little bit more time out of the office, uh, even if it isn't compensated. I'm um, Looking at actual care, 5% offer emergency or sick elder care, and uh, one of our respondents actually offers on-site or near-site elder care. On the financial side, 74% offer dependent care flexible spending accounts to help fund all these decisions, and uh, a few of our respondents also offer elder care subsidies to help with those payments. And finally, 12% offer long-term care insurance, and um, 20% offer this insurance on a voluntary or employee pay-all arrangement.
2: As a reminder, in previous podcast episodes, we have talked about states that have implemented either paid sick leave laws or paid caregiving or family leave laws. So uh, just be mindful of that depending on your state and what might be a requirement in your area.
3: So Rebecca, you mentioned that your boss once expressed the importance of planning for your parents wishes and needs. Would you be able to elaborate on that a little bit and kind of tell your story?
6: Yeah, it was interesting. I'd been working at a company for several years and we had a like a department meeting and, you know, we went through our topics and then he said, you know, there's a few other things I just want to touch on and he starts making sure we we're using our uh, donating to our 401k and that we were you know saving and making plans but also that we had a will and our trust set up and kind of plans for what will happen as you know we retire and stuff. Then he also brought up the fact that we should know our parents end of life plan or our siblings, depending on age, just because that as they get older, um, they tend to get sick. And sometimes it can happen fast. And next thing you know, you're in a hospital with them and the doctors asking you to make an end of life decision and you're not sure what to do. Yeah. And you don't think about that until somebody prompts you to think about that if everybody's healthy right now, for sure. And is that kind of what you took away from it? Yeah. I mean, for me, it really struck home the fact that First of all, what are my end-of-life wishes if, you oh, know, true. I'm pretty healthy right now, but if something were to happen, an accident or some sudden illness, what do what are my wishes and making sure that my loved ones know those. And yeah. also about my parents, and, you know, they are a little bit older than me, and what are we planning on doing? I have four brothers, and I could just imagine that there could be some debate about what we want to do with mom yeah. and dad, like how, you yeah. know, Are we going to drain all of their finances to pay for a cure or are we going to um, kind of let them go? And so it was interesting because we decided, uh, like I brought this up with my family, and so since then my parents have actually gone to a lawyer and set up um, their will and also end of life plans. And so they're. they both have kind of different feelings about, you know, how long they want to live. My dad is very much like, you know what, just send me on, and my mom's more willing to like try a few more things, but she's kind of expressed that, um, you know, her feelings, and they actually selected my sister-in-law to kind of be the final decision maker. So if like my mom is unconscious or my dad is not conscious, she would be the final person to make the call and she picked her for specific reasons. Um, she knows that my sister-in-law really loves her, but also that she's a pretty logical person, that she would talk to each of me and my mm-hmm. siblings, but also that her mom is a nurse, and so she could talk to her mom and kind of get some insight. And so once they made that decision, they decided to let us kids know so that we didn't freak out like during an accident. And so now it's kind of nice because I just know that my sister-in-law will be the decision-maker, and yep. I trust her. So She's a neutral voice for your family, a neutral party. Yeah. Now,
3: going back a little bit to when your boss originally brought this up, do you feel like
6: he, being a leader, almost set a tone for your organization? Because my boss shared it with all of us, and he's actually a vice president, mm. it had a bigger impact. First of all, every single person in our department heard it, And he was preparing to retire, and so we knew that he was kind of starting to face these decisions. And so, I mean, it's really stuck with me that he took that time in this meeting when all of us were really busy to talk about end-of-life decisions. Yeah, and I think it really helped create that culture of work. It's not just, you're not just here to work. Your life is not all about your job. You're here to, to be able to have money so you can live and think about those further decisions. Mm-hmm. And you can get an email that says this, but hearing it from your
3: leader, from somebody who you trust and respect, probably gave you so much greater of an impact and takeaway than just a flyer in your mailbox or an email from HR. Yeah, we get so deal. many,
6: you know, emails from HR reminding us we have to make our contribution decisions right, or right. you know, re-enlist for health insurance. After a while, you don't even read them. Yeah. But when someone comes out and really draws up a subject like this, especially a kind of a very touchy one, you remember it and it will impact you. So what
2: can employers do for this sort of situation that uh, would have maybe echoed or repeated what happened with Rebecca's situation? First of all, as an employer, you can remind your employees of the importance of planning for the future. Outside of retirement savings, we always are trying really hard to remind people to save for retirement, but it's important for them to talk about other aspects of retirement, including pre-planning for end-of-life situations or estate planning, or death and funeral planning. Emphasize the importance of having these planning conversations with family members before there's a need, as Rebecca um, indicated in her story. Sitting down and talking about it before it was even even a glimmer in anyone's eye made it a little bit easier to do. And ask leaders in your organization to support educators staff in this way. Because as you can see with Rebecca, it was her boss telling her about this that really made an impression on her. Leaders can make a big impression on staff members and it doesn't necessarily have to be your your executives. It could be, but it can be anyone who's perceived as a leader in your organization.
3: And that was my biggest takeaway, Julie, from Rebecca's story was just the importance of leadership and creating that culture of caregiving. Um, I think it's so necessary for, for leadership, like you said, on any level to create that shift that removes any stigma and really normalizes caregiving. And I think depending on the organization, this is going to be significantly more effective in communicating elder care benefits versus like a flyer or an email, and Rebecca's story really kind of brought that home.
5: hmm
0: it did. Well, Julie, I've known you a really long time, mm-hmm. and I remember when you were dealing with elder care issues with your own parents. Would you be willing to share your story? Sure, I would. Um,
2: as Kelly mentioned, I do have a caregiving story of my own, taking care of both of my parents, uh, for me and for them. That caregiving journey started very early. I was only 32 years old when my mom was diagnosed with cancer. That kind of leads back to Ann's statistics early in this episode about how it does impact younger employees. Mm-hmm. My dad and I shared caregiving responsibilities for her, and then that bled into me taking care of my dad who had a progressive disease. So in total, my caregiving journey lasted for eight years, and I was just shy of my 40th birthday when my father passed. Because I was young when this was happening, I did not really have any friends who were in the same situation at all. I mean, my friends were really great, don't get me wrong, they were very sympathetic and they would listen to me and they would offer support where they could, but they were not going through it themselves and they couldn't really offer tips or advice to me, like someone could who would, who had been there in the past uh, might have been able to do that. So it would have been really great to have a group I could turn to of people who were going through the same thing. Also, you know, when we were talking talking about this episode and this topic, I was thinking back to my own story, and I came to the very sad realization that I could have called our EAP, but I did not. The Foundation offers an EAP and has done so for years, and I did know about it. I tout myself as a benefits nerd or a nerd enthusiast, (laughs) and I also tout myself as a proponent of EAPs, but I never called ours, and I'm not really sure why. I, I look back and all I can think about is that I was caught up in my life and it was happening, you know, I didn't know how long it was gonna be. It was just my life. I was getting through each day, each week, each new situation. And so I never called. So at the time I saw the physical and emotional toll that all of this was taking on my parents. And I saw it a little for myself, but with the benefit of hindsight, I can see more clearly now that the impact it had then on me. So for what I wish I had known or I had done or I had had, I wish I'd had a support network of people to talk with and share ideas with, and I wish I had called our EAP.
3: One thing that resonated with me, Julie, throughout your story is how helpful a peer group would have been for you at this time. Colleagues who had gone through similar experiences could have gathered over lunch or after work in a safe place provided by the employer to to share these resources and even emotionally or technical information you could have shared. And this benefit would have been a low cost, no cost offering to the employer and made a huge impact for you and others in similar situations being impacted by providing care. Um, In addition to establishing a support group, what we've chatted about before in this episode is creating those resources and recommendations for employees as well to have available
2: And you're right, that would have been really helpful for me to have that here at work, have a a group that I could have talked to. And it's true, employers may not know which employees are going through and having these challenges, but if they can set aside a, a day Maybe a Tuesday at lunch, you know, go meet in this conference room. They don't even necessarily know at the start who will show up, but make that opportunity available. And I just will comment. For me, coming into work was was a good, a nice break, a reprieve from the caregiving responsibilities. It gave me something else to focus on, something of value that I could do every day, so...
0: I know a lot of you are thinking, well, we offer an EAP, so we've got this covered. I don't, I can cross this off my list. I don't even have to think about this. But I think if we're all honest with ourselves, EAP utilization rates are very low. And I don't think employees who are facing challenges, be they caregiving or any of the other kinds of challenges that EAPs deal with are taking advantage of the EAP that you offer. So again, it's so important to communicate and promote your EAP resources. You have to do it regularly and often and through different channels. And as Julie just mentioned, you may not know that somebody needs elder care assistance or referral or something like that, but if you're promoting and communicating about your EAP regularly and often, hopefully they'll make note of one of those communications and think, oh, yeah, maybe the EAP could help me with this situation. And if you feel that part of your low utilization rate has to do with there being a stigma attached to using an EAP, like only, you know, really sad, pathetic people use EAPs, you've got to somehow get rid of that stigma. And I think You know, some other companies have tried even rebranding the EAP as a tool that just helps employees get the most out of life and live fully and gives help by life's distractions because everyone has them at different times.
1: And again, I'm gonna echo your point with data. We did a uh, recent study about mental health and substance abuse benefits in the workplace. And from that study, we found that 91% of our respondents offer an EAP. And of those who offer, 60% offer some sort of caregiving assistance as part of their services. But again, a majority of respondents reported that their utilization rate of the EAP as a whole, not even just caregiving services, is less than 6%. So again, high offering, but not a lot of utilization, so.
3: As a reminder while we wrap up this episode, when considering offering, expanding, or enhancing elder care benefits, remember that if this is something that seems too much to afford or manage, start small and then gradually build programs and benefits. Maybe it does just start with a support group or a communication reminding employees of their EAP, like we've talked about throughout this episode. And as we suggest for many benefit offerings, it's always good to survey employees first to determine their needs and then introduce the benefit after determining that interest.
1: Thank you very much to our colleagues at the International Foundation for sharing their caregiving stories. We know this topic isn't always easy to talk about and we appreciate it very much. And that wraps up this episode of Talking Benefits. Uh, We want to give a formal listener shout out to Kate Murphy.
3: Thanks, Thanks, Kate.
1: And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like a shout out, drop us a line at podcast at ifebp.org. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast, your benefit stories, or even your topic suggestions. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast and subscribe to it on iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you prefer, so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next month. Today's program is copyrighted in 2018 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.